Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. Today, Pastor Fisher reminds us to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the only true answer and love for all of us. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Good morning. Good to see everybody today. Welcome on this beautiful, lovely fall day. And if you're joining us online, we're glad you're tuning in. Pray that God blesses you as you worship with us and that in your home you experience His peace. Uh, I just want to um, give a little uh, plug here for Hurricane Relief. This marks our stewardship's uh, campaigns beginning today. And if you haven't received the letter yet, as Gene said, you will. Um, and we're also collecting for the hurricanes that have hit Puerto Rico and Florida uh, for the next couple of weeks. So there will be an offering plate in the back. If you didn't come prepared to give today, you can bring that next week and just mark on your offering. Or if you're sending it in from online in some way, make sure you mark what part you want for the hurricane relief fund. Well, we're going to look at Acts chapter 20 today. Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. And there's a lot of wonderful stuff in his uh, address to them. This is what you might think of as his, um, like a farewell speech that's, what's the most important thing that I could say to you guys before I never see you again? You know, I think of um, the words that Joseph said just before he died to his brothers. Like, what's the most important thing that I can tell you guys? before I die. Uh, the patriarchs, Jacob, did the same thing just before he died. And Paul, knowing he was never going to see these Ephesians, these elders again, gave them some key stuff in Acts 20 that I think we can learn a lot from. We're going to dig in that today. Uh, but let's bow in prayer first before we do that. Lord, we just invite you to fill us with your spirit and give us grace to receive your word. Speak to us in our hearts, Lord. Inspire us. Lord, quicken us for new things in the Spirit, for the new life that's in You, Lord Jesus. We thank You for the, that You are the King who has shed Your blood for us and proved Your great love for us. And You call us to love You in return, to love You completely, a return to our first love to hold nothing back because you've held nothing back. Lord, as we consider Paul's words, your apostle, that he shared with the Ephesian elders on that last time he was with them, we ask you to teach us what we, you want us to learn, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock and redeemer, Lord Jesus. Our only way to the Father, our life and our truth, the truth. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, turn with me to Acts 20. Now, just a little background here. Paul's journey, this is his third missionary journey, and he's going around strengthening churches 
He's actually planted a church in Ephesus as part of this journey. And then he leaves from there. The end of chapter 19, you see this after the big uh, conflict and confrontation over what was happening with the Temple of Artemis. And he travels up through Macedonia and then down through Greece, and he's strengthening the churches. And then he learns of a plot. He's about to set sail from the shore of Greece to go back to uh, Jerusalem, and he learns of a plot against him. And so he changes his plans, goes back up through Macedonia and back down through Asia Minor. But he skips past Ephesus because he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He wants to get there before the day of Pentecost. And he knows if I go to Ephesus, I'm not going to be able to get out of there fast. We learn in this little conversation that he spent about three years with the church in Ephesus. That's a long time spiritually. You think about it, Jesus had three years with the apostles to train them and set them up. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, they were ready to go. Of course, Jesus was with them after that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul knew the same thing about himself. I've planted this church. They've got leaders now. They've got shepherds. And I can leave. And so he doesn't want to go back there for fear of being distracted and and missing the mark of getting to Jerusalem on time. And that's why he calls the elders to come and meet him at the port in Miletus. And so they, they come down from Ephesus and join him there at Miletus. And he has his last conversation with them. Uh, This is his final word to them, knowing they'd never see him alive again. Uh, And as as his last words, these are the things he thought most worth saying as a final farewell. Um, He's uh, written to them, and you can see later that while he's in jail, and it's not clear whether that jail time, if you read the uh, book of Ephesians, is when he's in Caesarea waiting to be tried, or later when he is on in house arrest in Rome. But he writes back to the Ephesians and some of the things that he says in this little conversation with the elders, he reinforces to the whole church when he's writing to them. But I want to just highlight a couple key points in his instruction to them. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now let's just... Pause there for a second and think about what he's saying. He's preached everything that would be helpful, teaching publicly and from house to house. So he's describing his way of doing ministry. He's preaching in the synagogue. When the synagogue wouldn't welcome him anymore, he went next door to a a place where there's a public gathering spot where he could address crowds. And he went from house to house, visiting with people and, and teaching them the gospel. You think of that as like our small group, showing up in our small groups. And by the way, I'm not an apostle, but I have said to the discipleship council that I want to come around and visit all the small groups in their home. So not that I'm Paul or anything like that, but as your chief shepherd, or at least the Lord Jesus is underling here, 
I want to come around and visit those small groups in their homes. So uh, expect a call or call me if you don't hear from me. Hello? <laughs> Good. So this is his method of building the church. And he declares the full will of God. If you look down there a little bit, uh, uh, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. I only know, not, not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You know, I, I appreciate that Paul is single-minded in his devotion. That he knows what his first priorities are, and he is given entirely to that as the thing that's going to grant the highest and best reward. Think about it, how often are we tempted and distracted to give our devotion and attention to lesser things that are really going to be like chaff at the end of the age, blown away with nothing left for us to give an account for. Paul was not like that, even to the point of being, recognizing I'm going to get imprisoned and I could be tortured, I could be mistreated, but it doesn't matter. My life is worthless to me compared to the glory of what I'm doing for Jesus, doing what he asked me to do. Single-minded devotion. And because of that devotion, the church planted in so many places the Gospel of Luke, Acts, written under his leadership. The letters of Paul to all the churches so that we would know what Christianity looks like and needs to look like in the Gentile context. The most prolific writer in the New Testament. Because of his single-minded devotion, how many billions have been blessed to this day? Now, you think that's just for Paul. It's not. It's for you and me. We ought also to have the same view in mind, single-minded devotion to what God has asked us to do. And Jesus has a task for everybody or tasks in the church. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you have a role and a task and a part of building up the body. And if you don't contribute your part, then the body's going to be lame in the place where you need to be contributing. God has something for you to do. Jesus made Paul's work very clear to him when he met him on the road to Damascus. Uh, you're going to be my messenger to the Gentiles. I've chosen you for that purpose. And Paul, as one who is radically transformed from the self-righteous, legalistic Pharisee to a man who knew I'm in the grace of God, but not because I deserve it, but because God has picked me. He loves me. He's chosen me. I totally don't deserve it. But he's given me a job to do inside this choosing, this picking. And gosh, if there's, I was totally zealous to do things when I thought he was my enemy. How much more so now that I know he's my best friend and he's Lord and Messiah. So think about it in your own life. He, Jesus, has paid for you with his blood with his own death, with the torture that he went through, the passion of his love for you, that you owe him your life. You owe him your all. 
And will you give him your all? Will you say to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do with these days I have left? Am I going to scrimp and scrounge and save and try to have a few more days of holiday where I can say I, I got the best that this world gave me, could give me? Or will you let that go? Paul saying, I, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Folks, when you put Jesus first, doing what he says for you to do, surrendering yourself, your life that you may consider worth a lot, and you put him first instead, he'll raise you to unimaginable heights with him. And the impact that you have on others because you've surrendered your own life to be obedient to Christ will be the eternal weight of glory that you celebrate for the rest of your eternity, not the rest of your life here. When this dust wears out, thank you, Jesus. But when we're given that new body that lives forever, the weight of glory, the crown of glory that will rest upon you because you surrendered yourself to do what Jesus asked you to do. Will you do that? Will you take a, that fearless and searching moral inventory and say, Lord, where's the chaff in my life that I've been holding back from you the best? I've left my first love of you. Actually, I, I, I use that quote because that's one of the things Jesus said later to the Ephesian church. If you read the book of Revelation, when Jesus gave a letter to Ephesus through John, decades probably later after Paul, had come through there and planted the church after Paul had been martyred in Rome, well after Paul had written his letter to the Ephesus church, and Jesus is writing to the church of Ephesus. He praises them for a couple things. I'll get to those in a minute. But he challenges them. You left your first love of me. You know, you guys have all this reputation for being solid and true in your doctrine. And we'll talk about how important that is. That's, that's not minor. That's very important. But he says, you've left your first love of me. Return to your first love. Or else I'm going to take the candle, the, the lampstand, from you. And I think I'm getting that. I know sometimes you can mix up some of the things Jesus says in those letters. Uh, but that first love, Paul was holding on to his first love right to the end. Some of us need to return to our first love. We need to assess again how we're ordering and living our lives. And if people did uh, looked at us from the outside, would they know that Jesus was first in our lives? Vital question. Because it's one we're going to need to answer to Jesus when we stand before him. You love me with an everlasting love. You laid down your life for me. You came down from heaven and gave up all your glory so that I could be with you forever. What did I do with it? Here it is, Lord. So Paul is saying to the Ephesian elders, don't worry about me. Some of you might be wringing your hands. Don't go to, Eph don't go to Jerusalem. It's going to be bad for you there. I don't care. That's where I'm supposed to go. That's where I need to go. That's where I long to go because I want to get one last chance to address my own people so that if by any means possible, I can win some of them to the Messiah. And he goes on to Jerusalem and the very thing that the Holy Spirit said was going to happen to him did 
happen to him. Now notice a little bit further on now, we're going to get into the doctrine bit. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, I just want to pause there. We're going to get into their shepherding in a minute. I have not hesitated to declare to you the whole will of God. He's innocent of their blood because he's told them the full gospel, everything. Now, this is really an echo of what the Lord said to Ezekiel in chapter 3 when he called Ezekiel. And I just want you to hear this little piece of Ezekiel's call and see if you recognize what Paul, why Paul is taking the attitude he is. Son of man, this is Ezekiel 3, 17. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die. And you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life. That wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin but you will have saved yourself. Now, do you see the responsibility on the shoulders of the prophet to tell the truth that God has given them to, to say? He's saying to Ezekiel, if I tell you to, to warn somebody and you don't, their blood's going to be on your head. Again, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sin. The righteous things that person did will not be remembered, and I will hold you, he's talking to Ezekiel, accountable for their blood. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and they do not sin, they will surely live because they took warning, and you will have saved yourself. So the prophet, the apostle, the preacher the one who's given the task of passing on the word of God is responsible to declare the whole will of God so that people know to turn and run from their sins, to trust Christ, so that their blood doesn't fall on the person who was the messenger of God. That's what Paul's saying. God told me to tell you his whole will, and I have. I've told you everything that could help you in any way spiritually. I've not held anything back. You're responsible for yourselves. Your blood is not on me because I told you the truth. It's on you. So, you know, I want you to think about that for a minute. On the one hand, we as leaders and preachers of the church, we have a responsibility to pass on the whole will of God. I was talking with uh, one of our staff members, in fact, in staff meeting recently, about how there is this temptation in many sectors of Christianity to dumb down the message or to uh, not speak about certain hard sayings. 
that are offensive to the culture right now. And that there are places you can go where you'll never hear anything about the hard sayings of Jesus. You'll just hear the plus, the positives, the, you know, Jesus loves you and God wants you to prosper and um, he wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you ask him for things in prayer, he'll give you anything you want. And all this kind of stuff that focuses on the positives in the scripture, but it's not the whole will of God because it doesn't call people to repent of wickedness, of greed, of selfishness, of thievery, of immorality, of all the things that we do that are contrary to the will of God and lead us into destruction in the first place. So they've got the prosperity gospel, but they don't have the whole gospel. And so people are often sick in their spirits unto death, but they're not being led to repentance by that kind of gospel. The whole gospel, the whole will of God, the call to repent of evil, that's how Paul starts out. You know that I, here, back to Ephesus, back to what he's saying in Acts 20. You know I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. You see, it's not enough to have faith. We've got to repent of our evil deeds. Repent of our evil attitudes. Maybe I don't need the paper of my sermon. Let's see. <laughs> Sorry. You know, our, our culture really wants to shut down the bad things that Christianity has to say. But you think about it. If you had cancer and you went to a doctor and you wanted a doctor who was just positive, right? You show up and the doctor says, hey, you're in great shape. I love you. Um, you look good on the outside there. And, um, you know, go home and be blessed. And you actually secretly had cancer. And you knew something inside wasn't right. Would you say that that's the kind of doctor you want to go back to? No. You'd be like, can I get a second opinion? Because I may look good on the outside, but I know there's something really wrong with me on the inside. And so you'll go to a doctor who's willing to give you the bad news so that you can deal with it. And the gospel is like that. Jesus came to call the sick, the sinners, people who were trapped in their sin to set them free. But he had to name the problem that we've got so that he could bring the solution as the spiritual doctor of our souls to call us to repent, to say, you can change your mind. You can be forgiven. You can be washed clean from that sin. You can start over. Get on the road of obeying me. Let go of that stuff. Renounce it. Where you've been playing with the devil, renounce him. Say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Kick him out. Right? So the, the whole will of God is what Paul preached to the Ephesian church. He gave them everything they needed to help build them up. He didn't hold back the parts of the will of God that were uncomfortable. You know, I've got to tell you as a preacher, there are times that I hate to talk about certain things. You know, my flesh comes into play and I feel like sort of the, 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 the opinion pieces of the secular world, like darts that are flying, my weakness. And I think, oh gosh, do but I have to say this because this is part of the whole will of God. 
And if I hold back the hard parts, how will people's souls get healed? And worse, what will I do when Jesus says to me, I told you to tell them the whole truth and you didn't give it to them. Their blood's on your head. Now, I don't want to be there at the last day. I want to be able to say, Lord, <laughs> it was uncomfortable and I didn't like it and I squirmed sometimes, but I told them the truth. And now it's on their head. And I tried to give them the whole gospel as best as I understood it. So, whew. let them, you judge them for what's between you and them because they got it. They heard it. And I heard what you told me, so here's my account of it. That's what Paul's doing here with the Ephesian elders, and he's doing it as a timeless teaching for the church. We are still responsible to give the whole will of God in our preaching, even if it makes people squirm and uncomfortable, because it's precisely where we squirm and are uncomfortable that we may need help to repent and get out of sin and the way of the world and the flesh and the devil to come back to the way of God, to get back on the way of love again. Amen? Amen. Amen. Good, good. Okay, we can move on. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch. Now, this is the shepherding bit. He's called the elders. These are the shepherds. These are the pastors. These are the small group leaders. These are the key lay leaders of the church, the administrative board, the elders of the church. Not just the pastor, but all the leaders. He's called them down from Ephesus to visit him at Miletus. They're on the coast. He's getting ready to get on the ship. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know, now, so, so he's really calling them. He's, he's passing his mantle fully to them. I was the shepherd who planted this church. I gave you the whole gospel. I shepherded you guys, you women, men, whoever they were, into your walk with Christ. Now you take over and you shepherd the people God has given you. Keep watch over them. They were bought by the blood of the Lamb. They are God's people. Jesus is the chief shepherd. You're his assistants. Do the work. Don't shirk it. Don't give up. Feed my sheep. Love me by, show you love me by loving and caring for my sheep, tending them. But he goes on. I know this is a warning, an important warning, especially in light of what we wrestle with today in terms of the heresies and assaults on the church, the effort to substitute worldly teaching in place of the gospel. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now this is a warning about wolves. Jesus gave the same warning. There will be wolves. False prophets, false Christs, people that come and try to turn people away from Jesus, turn people away from the gospel. 
And here's what the wolves look like. And he's warning them, be on your guard because some of you, it could happen to you. I, I find it interesting that that's when Jesus corrects Ephesus in Revelation. He starts out by saying, you've done this well. You've tested those false apostles and found them to be false and you've rejected them. He praises them for that. So they probably took on this warning of Paul pretty seriously. Oh my gosh, I don't want to be a wolf and we got to watch out for the wolves. All right. But now let's think about this warning. He says there will be men from your own number will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Well, that's the characteristic of a wolf is that they distort the truth of the gospel. They don't give what's actually there. They give what they wish was there or what they've decided is better than what's there. And they lead away people to their destruction. Because that's really what a wolf does, right? They devour their victims at the end. Now, you think about the various wolf movements that have risen in Christian history since the founding of the church. Heresies and cults and distortions of the truth. Different versions of Jesus. Uh, different understandings, throwing out the Scripture and saying, well, I like this book, but not that. This book's too hard. There's too much repentance in this book. Let's get rid of that one. And, <laughs> and they end up with something less than Christianity, less than the real Jesus by what they're offering. You know, there's several cults that are uh, worldwide and world famous that are doing this today. Prophets who came in their own name and said, we're bigger than Jesus. What we've got is greater than him. You know, and really not treating him anymore as the way, the truth, and the life. Distorting that. Calling followers away after them to their destruction. Because folks, there's no life in the end except through Jesus. And if you've got a false Jesus a different Jesus, a Jesus who's not the real Jesus, as passed on by the apostles who knew him, then you're not in Christ anymore. And Paul is warning Ephesus, your doctrine is vital. What you preach and teach is vital. It needs to be the truth. And watch out that you don't go after people who distort that truth. You need to be able to test what that is in the first place. And folks, I want to just say, if you're not reading the Scripture and getting into it day to day so that you know what it says, it can be very easy to be deceived when a false teacher comes along and say, hey, I got spiritual truth for you. I've had a revelation from an angel. And it was just so exciting and wonderful and awe-inspiring. And let me just tell you the good news I have for you. Come and follow me. If you don't know God's Word because you've been into the teaching of the apostles yourself and you understand it, you can be deceived by a distortion of the truth. That's one of the reasons that it's so important to make daily Scripture reading a key part of your Christian life. So that you know what Jesus has said already through His apostles. Jesus has spoke. He doesn't change His mind. He's not a liar like some of us who will say one thing and then come out of their mouth the other thing. 
God does not lie. He does not change. And you can find it out here. So study to show yourself approved. He's warning the Ephesian elders. Folks who distort the truth are actually wolves. So watch out because it could be some of you if you're not careful. You know, I think this is one of the key reasons that the United Methodist Church is in such horrible turmoil. Because we stop making the truth of Christ the center of our life together. Instead, we made institutional unity and political unity and the idea of just being united our common ground. Well, how can you be united if one group believes the gospel and another doesn't? If one group believes Jesus has conquered death and another doesn't? If one group says the Bible is the word of God and he has spoken once and for all through the prophets and the apostles and the other says, no, human reason is better. We're smarter. We're wiser. We have science and we figured out how to master the world. So human reason is higher and better and to be believed. And we can set aside those parts of the Bible that are inconvenient, hard, difficult, that we don't like because they inhibit our freedom. How can there be unity when there's such distortions of the truth in different parts of the church? There cannot be. You know, unless Jesus is the source of unity, there's no ultimate human unity between human beings. Now, I, I think it's in the Ephesian letter where he talks when he's writing to the Ephesians and saying, you know what, it's an amazing thing. I'm paraphrasing a bit here. That God has brought you Gentiles into the house of God. And he's done that by nullifying the law that was the definition and the boundary around the Jews that just made them the people of the law. And in Christ, the dividing wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles has come down because in his body, he's killed the law. It was crucified up there with him. And so we're not under the law anymore. You Gentiles can have been able to come into the house of God and become part of his people, to be built up together into the temple of God. Because Jesus has put us together, Jews and Gentiles alike, who receive him as Messiah. See, Jesus is the only source of lasting, spiritual, godly unity. And it's not just any old Jesus. It's not the Jesus we wish he would be. It's the Jesus as he actually is, as he's revealed himself to be through his prophets and apostles. The truth undistorted. That is worth fighting for and dying for. Amen? Okay. Do I need to say more about that today? Can I move on? We got it? Okay, we got one more piece I want to look at today. He commits them to God in the word of his grace. Here's what he says. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see what we're getting through Jesus and his grace, that lasting inheritance among those who are being sanctified. You know what sanctification means? It means being made holy. To be made holy means you have to have your sins washed away. You can't keep wallowing in the mud and be sanctified, the mud of sin. you got to stop. you got to come out. 
But it's a process, folks. Because a lot of times the stuff that's in our hearts is like squirreled away layers of mud that have accumulated in there because we haven't known Christ or walked with him consistently in our lives. And we've just shoveled and squirreled the sin away in little corners. So sanctification, when we start to follow Jesus, sometimes it's dramatic and radical. A person who's been a a full-blown, hard-on, rebellious sinner finds Jesus and gets washed clean, and they're radically transformed. They're a different person. But sometimes we got stuff that's hidden away, those little pockets of unforgiveness and bitterness and, and, and childhood trauma and stuff we haven't looked at and secret anger against our parents and unforgiveness and judgments against those people who hurt us in the course of our life, and we haven't dealt with those. They're like junk squirreled away in the basement of our heart. When we follow Jesus, and if you read the Ephesian letters, there's a letter, there's actually a, a whole section on dealing with this kind of hidden stuff. Talking about forgiving each other and living right and getting, uh, letting go of old ways of lying and stealing and, and living to, we'll, we'll get, look at this in a second, uh, to work hard so you can help others who are in need. But this little piece of sanctification is vital because every Christian is called to get on the road of full sanctification. Not just the outer washing of the body, but the inner washing of the conscience. The inner washing of getting rid of the weight of little sins built up from childhood, repenting of them and getting rid of them. Forgiving the people who have hurt us, naming where we've been hurt, naming our sins in it, the anger, the bitterness, the hatred, the unforgiveness, the judgments that we've made, the ungodly responses we've had to the things of life and getting that washed clean out of us so that there's nothing left room for except love. Now, that's the thing. If you fill up your vessel of your spirit with the mud of all those ungodly responses and sins, there's only so much room for the Holy Spirit. I mean, you think about this. This is a little cup of water. What if this was all mud right up to here? What if this represented me? All mud right up to here and a little bit of the water of the Holy Spirit at the top. And boy, that was clear, beautiful water at the top. But if you stirred it just a little bit, which is what life does, boy, that mud's going to show up pretty fast. This is why we're called to complete sanctification. Not to give up on being made holy. And that is possible because Jesus' blood has been shed for us. It's not something you earn. It's something you choose to participate in. You can surrender. It's something we receive, that washing. It's the choice we make to say, I repent, Lord, of hating such and so. Forgive me, I forgive them for hurting me. And yeah, it hurt. But I'm going to give that to you. Forgive me for X, Y, Z. I repent of holding on to that. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Folks, if what you've got in your cup is mud, your spirit's going to feel pretty muddy. It's going to feel pretty bad. It's going to actually feel like you're slogging around with a huge bag of mud on your back in your spiritual walk in life. Listen, Jesus wants to set you free from that, and he is able to, and he can. That's why Paul starts it out, I commit you to God into the word of his grace. His grace sets us free from this stuff. 
All you have to do is receive it. Yes, Lord, I'm willing. I'm so angry with such and so I can't do it. But yes, with your help, I'm willing to do it because your grace is greater. You can do the impossible. Then Paul reminds him of a few things that he's been, what his, his, his uh, mode of life has been. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You know, this is stewardship kickoff season. Now, this is really calling this church. Paul called the Ephesians. Work hard so that you have extra money to help the weak, extra resources to help the weak. You know, the world works hard so that it can go on longer vacations. It can buy bigger houses and build bigger barns and it can collect bigger, large screen TVs. I, 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 what? They're like a whole wall now at the house. That is not why we're supposed to be working hard, folks. Those things all turn to death. They're all going to burn up. But when we give of our strength to help the weak and lift them up, are we not doing exactly what God has done for us? You know, that's why Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. He and His Father and the Holy Spirit have been giving and pouring out on those who don't deserve it, on the weak, the lost, the empty, the sinners, rescuing them, saving them, cleaning them, making them His children, lifting them up. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. And so we're called to be like Him. That's what stewardship campaign is all about. In fact, I want to say kind of like this. Don't give to the church because the church needs it. Give to the work of the Lord because you love Jesus. And what you do with your labor and your money and your resources shows who you love. It shows what your priorities are, the God you worship, what is most important in your life and faith and future. That's how you spend your money. So do a fearless and searching inventory of how you use your money. Do you use it in such a way that when you stand before God at the last day, you can say, Jesus, I gave my all to support the work of the gospel because I knew that that was gonna, what was going to last forever. That the people I helped, the weak, the lost, the lonely, the folks who didn't have enough money to pay their bills, the folks who didn't have enough money to buy shoes or put clothes on their backs, I helped get them there. Because you love me and you put clothes on my back. You gave me the strength to work. You washed me clean and you made me your child. And I wanted to be like you. So that's how I lived. Amen? So that's what Stewardship Sunday is all about. Look at what you're doing with your checkbook and do an analysis. Am I giving to the work of the Lord so that when I stand before him, I can say, you said Whoever sows sparingly to the works of the kingdom, they're going to reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously is going to reap generously. I wanted to reap generously, and I gave to your work generously. That's what God's calling us to do. That's what God's calling us to return to our first love of what we do with our money. To show that God is indeed God in our lives and not money, that it's not our God. Now, I know uh, when I first learned the, the, good, the, the word about tithing, 
And you know, 10% is that Old Testament word. Tithe means 10%, representing that portion of your income uh, that is described in the law. And, and I heard it probably in pretty legalistic terms back then. But when I heard it, I understood that God's people need to give in proportion as God has blessed them in gratitude for what God has blessed them with. And I had $3,000 in my pocket at the time that I'd saved up from working and I had tithed on none of it. And when I left that, that message that I heard that night, I went like right away and I got $300 and I gave it to the church because I wanted to get in on being part of the life of God where he's in charge of my money, where I trust him to take care of me more than I trust me. And I use my money to honor him so that the kingdom can advance. Now, that was life-changing for me in terms of my financial responsibility and success, actually. That's one of those places where God says, test me in this and see if I won't pour out on you such a blessing you can't contain it if you will be faithfully in giving to me in proportion to the way I've given you. Now, every one of us as believers is called into that. That's, that's not, remember the poor widow. She gave what? What'd she give? Like a penny or two? And people looking at that from the outside said, oh gosh, is she cheap or stingy or what? And Jesus said, whoa, whoa, you're not looking at the heart. God knows that she put in everything she had. And that's how she's going to be blessed and judged, because she put in everything she had, not because you can make a judgment about that from the externals you see. God looks on the heart. So, folks, let's let God look at our heart. Let's look, let him look and, and analyze us and say, and if we've been living unfaithfully with our money, it's time to start living faithfully so we can be a blessing to others. Work hard. In fact, Paul repeats it when he's talking to the Ephesian elders in Ephesians, not the elders, the whole church in Ephesians 4, 28. And I'm coming to a close. This is awesome, right? When the Holy Spirit picks you up and you got to just preach, keep preaching past 10 o'clock. Hang in there. Almost done. 4.28. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. So this is part of his advice to the church on how to live. But only what's helpful for others, to building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Thank you, Lord. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Anyone who has... Back it up, verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. It's almost the same language from Acts 20 when he's talking to the elders and he says to them, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we, all of us, must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it's more blessed, said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I want to encourage you to get on board with the blessing of giving and step in to trusting Christ with your finances 
and reorder them so that the kingdom of God is first in how you give. Helping others in need, which is part of the work of the kingdom, is first in how you give. That you order your hard work with the recognition that you get to be like God, our Father, our big brother Jesus, who works so hard to bless us because they love us. And so we want to be like them. Amen? All right. The final thing I want to just say here is that his word of farewell. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept and they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Like, this is it. You planted us. We know Jesus because of you. We have found eternal life. We are totally and utterly different than we used to be. We have a hope and a future. You're our spiritual father. And we're never going to see you again. It was hard for them to say goodbye to Paul. But he then they accompanied him to the ship. And the next verse, just verse 1 of chapter 21, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. Torn ourselves away. That was the love that these folks had for each other. That was hard to part. Now this is the kind of love God wants us to have. For one another. This is the kind of love that's growing in our small groups where people are giving themselves to get to know each other and support each other. You know, I hear what happens in the small groups sometimes where folks get a chance to know and get into each other's lives in a good way. And I don't mean like sort of like the uh, interference kind of way, <laughs> but in the kind of way that's family and supportive, the way the family of God is supposed to be. And I've heard how different members of small groups have helped other members who've been in need. And they've fulfilled the gospel. They've lived out the love that they have for each other inside those small groups. And I want to strongly encourage you, if you're not part of a small group now, already, get into one. Move heaven and earth to get things aside in your life to make room for a small group in your life. A house church where you are known and you can know other people and you can help meet each other's needs and you can help each other learn and grow in sanctification in Christ together. The love that these folks had for each other, for Paul, expressed in his weeping, it says that he sowed the church there with tears for three years. What was happening in that church made Paul's heart break. He agonized over them in prayer he lifted them daily, regularly to the Lord that Christ might be formed in them. He poured out himself like water in love for them. And that's why they were so grieved when it was time for the final goodbye. The love they'd experienced from him and in the gospel with him. Now, this is what God wants for all of us as a church. He wants us to be a church where people who are weak and need help Find help from others who are willing to help the weak and the needy. A church where you're known and loved and your troubles are not just yours to bear alone, but there's somebody else to bear what's on your shoulders. Where you are challenged to live into the full gospel. Where you have brothers and sisters who are willing to say the hard things to you because they love you. You know, that's a sign of a real friend. Uh, I heard the funniest story, and I'll close with this. 
We had a, a, a friend in the family who, as a young man, didn't use deodorant. And he didn't take a shower often enough. And when he would come around, you noticed that, as you might. And everybody was afraid to tell him the truth about that because they thought it would hurt his feelings. And my mom, I heard about this at the whole 70th anniversary celebrations. My mom finally took that young man aside and said, listen, Theophilus, <laughs> name change to protect the guilty. Uh, you need to start taking a shower every day and you've got to use deodorant. Because it's hot in America, you can't get away with not doing that. You just start to smell bad and it drives people away. And I'm telling you that as hard as it is to hear because I love you. That's friendship, folks. That's true friendship. To say the hard things to the friend when they need to be said so the friend's life can get better. And I guarantee you, if you do that for each other, things will start to get better as you start to use deodorant and take a shower. <laughs> All right, amen. This is the word of the Lord today. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkill Haven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.